正在收听。In the corner, by the by, the water pail, 博客，好的。Fun counter guy, thanks for stopping by. A few years ago, I was working in a Nashville record store where this old grumpy guy always seemed to stop by once a week. And at his every visit, I would attempt to greet him warmly. To which he responded by ignoring me. I asked my coworkers what was up with the crusty crank, and they just shrugged and said, "That's just the jazz man." I would soon learn that he bought a massive amount of jazz-related music and paraphernalia from us and anybody else in town. Sometime later, I developed an obsession with a jazz boogie woogie singer, whom was so obscure that even the internet never seemed to have more than a few sentences about her. I realized that my best hope to find anything out about this dead girl crush of mine was to try to get the jazz man to acknowledge my existence. So the next time he came in, I said hi, to which he rolled on past as if I didn't exist. I went and found him digging in a milk crate of seventy-eights, and standing over him, I said, "Hey, nothing." I repeated myself and louder. The old man jumped and yelled back, "What?" I said, "Do you know who Yuna Mae Carlisle is?" The old son of a goat softened and asked, "How does a young fellow like you know about Yuna Mae?" And that is how I ended up making a friend for life. The jazzman started inviting me first to some unadvertised jazz performances where I would end up dancing in a line of prancing eighty and ninety-year-old women with umbrellas and twirling handkerchiefs. In fact, the recording you hear now is from one of those happenings. My new friend would end up carrying me to obscure jazz conventions. Introducing me to other great music and eccentric characters, and even finding for me 78 records of my ghostly girlfriend Yuna May. Jazzman even let me inside a building he said very few people had set foot in, his home. There was artifacts and collectibles everywhere, books leading to the ceiling, CDs stacked on the back of the toilet, and—and I'm not kidding—78 stored in his microwave. The man just eats out every meal at this point. He also sleeps in a recliner because there's so many musical treasures filling his bed. Take that how you will. Oh, and by the way, the jazzman wasn't so much a jerk; it was just he was hard of hearing. Too many nights and loud jazz clubs. Anyway, jazzman cruised on back by the woodpile for a few minutes to talk collecting, his relationship with the music love of his life, and his own bizarre but charm story. First of all, how did you discover jazz music? We're in Nashville, Tennessee, and I grew up right outside Nashville uh, in the uh, late '30s and '40s, in a little town called White Bluff, Tennessee.、Uh, I'm a World War II child. I was born 1937, and、uh, my dad was a doctor. We lived in Knoxville, where he practiced with his father, who was a doctor.、Mm-hmm. Before the war, I don't remember much about that. But、uh, when the war came along, my mother and I we moved back to Middle Tennessee while he was overseas. Okay, I, mean, I don't want to be too verbose, but、yeah. fill in.、Yeah. Uh, he uh, 
was gone four and a half years. I grew up in this little town. Uh, there's a whole story sometime I'll tell you about my mother. Okay. See, she was one of the early female lawyers. She basically owned most of White Bluff, okay? How, how did she acquire all that land? She was adopted by a cousin relative for inheritance purposes. And the fellow that adopted her was a uh, graduate of West Point. He was born in Charlotte in 1849. He graduated from West Point in uh, 1874, I believe it was. He was one of the cavalry officers you see in the movies, you know. And after the Spanish-American War, he retired. He was military governor of one of the islands there during the war. Anyhow, okay. So, I'm growing up in White Bluff. Uh, when your mother or your relative or somebody owns most town, you, you're different. You don't get to play with everybody, okay? So I learned to play my own, but I did have one good friend, Jimmy Brown. He's about a year older. He, one day, when I was about nine years old, found an old wind-up machine. Victrola? Victrola, yeah. Kind of played some of those records. Some of those records come from turn of the century up to 50 years later. And uh, he also listened to a radio program from WWL in New Orleans, New Orleans Jazz Club. And uh, he kind of introduced me to that. Well, he was, you like it, I like it. That reached all the way up in Tennessee. Oh, yeah, yeah, on Sunday night. Okay. It, was, it was one of the 50,000 watch stations, like WSM, WLAC. I was mainly, you know, following him. I kind of looked up to him. So for several years, this was in the late 40s, we'd listen to the show and learn a little bit of jazz. And in those days, uh, 78s were going out, and I'd just go around and got the old 78s. Why, yes, Andrew, you can clean out the attic, you know. About what year was this? We're talking 48, 49. And I was learning. I, I became so interested. I learned and got to see and take a few pictures of him before he died. Have you heard of Bunk Johnson? Sure. I met Bunk. I met him in New Iberia, Louisiana. This is after the war. My father came back and uh, mother wanted to travel some, so we took a driving trip to Mexico. What's the big Acapulco? And uh, by this time, I had joined the New Orleans Jazz Club and I knew where roughly Bunk lived. I didn't know where New Iberia was. So we were driving. And uh, somehow or another, I found out that we were going to come back to Iberia. So I begged my father to let me try to find this monk, you know, he thought it was crazy. I found him, took four pictures of him. He was probably in his last stages, and you know, who's this white kid? Where did you find him at? In his house. We got to about lunchtime, <laughs> and I started asking the waitress, I said, have you ever heard of Bunk Johnson? Who? You know, and the white waitress says, well, there's some old black guy that plays trumpet lives, you know. So I, my father, my father thought, you're nuts. My father was a good musician, besides being a doctor. So anyhow, went to the house where they said this old black player, right? And there came Bunk Johnson. I thought I was in the presence of God. Yeah. 
So I said, can I take some pictures? And yeah, he was, he was about out of it. Okay, I'll give you, this is, this is, I was real young when I started. I started collecting records. Jimmy was my friend. He's gonna collect records, I'm gonna collect records. I'll have more records than you do. I didn't know who these people are. I recognized a few names, but I never threw anything away. And you still don't? No. I had 8,000 records before I ever had a phonograph. No problem, I would go down to Jimmy's hardware store, his father, that's where I'd play my records. Well, by this time we'd moved to Knoxville. I was uh, becoming much more aware I'd read everything I'd get my hands on. Right here, every couple of years, I'd go back through the stack and, oh, you know, here's a name. I knew Louis Armstrong was, and it just grew and grew. Where that uh, by the time I was in my mid-teens, or no, no, younger than that, uh, Jimmy announced one day, he says, I'm gonna go to New Orleans. You gonna go to New Orleans? I'm going to New Orleans, 14 years old. So I announced to my mother, you know, and uh, you know, he said, oh, your mother will never let you go. And I said, the only thing she said, where are you gonna get the money? By the way, that's where your dad and I went on our honeymoon. I said, well, I'll get the money. I'll tell you what, I've been, she had a lot of rental houses. Uh, I'll paint some of your houses. Yeah, you will. So I painted one about half one when I tore it down after she died. You know, if you, you can still see where the paint stopped. So I still didn't have enough money. Well, my mother also owned the local bank. So I said, I've got a birthday kit or something. So I go down to the bank, tell uh, Richard Larkins, he was the president, that I want my birthday money. Well, you know, Miss Ann's son, you know, okay, two or three hundred bucks. Had a lot of money in those days, yeah. you know. So, had a friend in Knoxville who I'd turned on to jazz and uh, talked him into going, and he was terrified that his father would find out mm -hmm. and get in a lot of trouble. So he met us down there. So, I mean, man, we had a big spenders from the north. George Lewis, you've heard of George yeah. Lewis? Uh, the first night we were there, uh, we ended up, uh, Alan and I in the El Morocco Club, the Silver Slipper, and there was George Lewis, I mean. After about 30 minutes, I noticed a couple of great big beefy guys came in, you know, and one of them had said, oh, I didn't think you'd hear me. He said, son, how old are you? You got some identification? Hey, man, move. I'm watching George Lewis, where he picked me up. Honest to God truth, as they were hauling me out, and George Lewis, he didn't know what these young white kids, George Lewis and the band were playing Farewell Blues. So, okay, they kick us out of the quarter. Now, in those days, were most of the jazz clubs, they were mostly attended by black folk, or, or both? both? Well, Bourbon Street in those days, they were becoming more tourists. Okay. Bourbon Street today is nothing like sure. it was then. It's always been wild, but... Yeah. But uh, then we discovered another legendary player. You heard the name Papa Oscar Celestine?
he goes almost back to Bolden today. He would play the boats off. You know, New Orleans was one of the major seaports of the world. But quite often they would have a band, you know, playing it off. So we heard him and uh, I went up and started talking to him, you know, and you know, he's kind of curious about this white kid. He said, will you come out and visit me at home? You know, I had no idea where home was. He said, we just tell the taxi. Lived on Frenchman Street. This is one of the areas that got flooded, we've known. So I did, he and his wife fed me red beans and rice. Now, you know, we ran out of money. We came, We went down in a, in a Pullman car. We came back in a, a broken down Greyhound. Just enough money, you know, to split a sandwich. Got up the next morning and said, well, did you join the order? Oh, by the way, where'd you get the money? Uh, well, I told uh, Clarence at the bank I wanted my money. Yeah, that shit hit the fan, you know. Civil War, I remember him well. He uh, used to go out and lasso my pony when he would get loose, you know. So I kind of had a, uh, I marched near the edge. Uh, I was never a good student. I was a loner. People didn't like or understand the kind of music I liked. Time I was in my mid-teens, uh, I wanted uh, to uh, interview some of these guys, like Count Basie and Raven Doe and Happy Lemaire, uh, you know. In those days, the big Magnatech recorders, about 80 pounds. I'd lug it out to the Sabon restaurant, you know. At intermission or something, I'd get his manager. Hi, I'm Andy Smith from WROL. Uh, they sent me out to interview. I still got these. Now, have you transferred these tapes this week? No, no, not yet. I'm better. I'm, yeah, you're right. You're right. I'll give you. I'll give you some copies. Okay. But I've got interviews with uh, Basie. Uh, people like that, and I was becoming pretty knowledgeable to jazz, you know, some of them look at me, how do you know all this, you're not old enough, you weren't even born when I was, yeah. but I could talk good. Did any of them figure out you weren't from the radio station? Well, Basie, I got to know Basie through the years later, you know, he said, I wondered, you looked awful young, but you knew a lot of what you were talking about, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, Jim McPartland, who plays Big Spiderback, you know, I mean, I could talk a good game, you know, with him. I graduated from high school. I didn't want to be a doctor like my father or lawyer like my mother. I really wasn't ready for college. I didn't know I wanted to be an army officer. So I took ROTC. What was the appeal of being an officer? Well, my father was a army surgeon. Colonel James in the West Pointer was a infantry, army. This was the good war. The military just always fascinated me. I took seven years to get a four-year degree. I'd probably still be there if one day the PMST, the 
professor of military science and tactics, said, if you don't graduate this quarter, you're going to be too old to be a lieutenant. Oh man, now I'm panicking. By this time, I'd switched to Middle Tennessee State. Uh, five years in Knoxville, at UT, got married, big mistake, got two wonderful daughters. And then when I got to Middle Tennessee State, uh, I was still cutting class and looking for records and everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is when they came to me and said, if you don't graduate, you're going to be too old to be a lieutenant. Well, I was having trouble, uh, mainly because I wasn't going to class doing the work, with English. I was minor in English. So I said, well, i got to go and see my professor, Dr. Tucker. I go in, Dr. Tucker, I'm one of your students. You know, I was scared, you know. He may have barely knew who I was or barely on the radar. Come on in, what do you want, kid? He said, uh, I'm in one of your classes. Oh, yeah, you owe me some papers. I said, I have got to graduate this quarter to get my Army commission. Well, when I walked into his office, like everybody does, they have diplomas and everything. Here's this huge diploma from Annapolis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he, he went to the U.S. Naval Academy and was a heroic submariner in World War II. He said, you want to be an Army officer? Why don't you study? You know? Oh, yeah, well, you're right. You owe me a paper. Now I know who you are. Where's that paper? You promised me that paper. You know, I said, oh, God, this is it. I said, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. I said, uh, I'll have the paper here Monday morning, sir. Yeah, well, you better. What do you... And then I asked him, I said, uh, what do you want me to write it on? Man, the stuff hit the fan. I told you people to write about something you know. I brightened up. said, oh, I'm an expert on jazz. <laughs> you are what? You know, he believed me like I said, I'm a nuclear physicist or something. Yeah. So we got to talk a little bit about jazz, you know, and he went, where's this guy get all these British names, you know? So Monday morning, I brought the paper and a stack of Chris Barber records and loaned them to him for a week. To make a long story, quick ending, I got out of school, yeah. graduated. Did my tour in Korea, and when I finally got off active and came back, we became lifelong friends. And uh, gradually over the years, uh, he copied all of his records and then gave me his collection. I'd loan him records and he'd copy them. And we were just great buddies. It was through him years later, after I got in, back in the Nashville era, that the uh, Tennessee Arts Commission decided to fund a jazz arts council. The people that got it off the ground was a guy who ran for governor, uh, David Pack, in uh, 1974. He ran against Ray Blanton, mm -hmm. who ended up in jail. I don't know yeah, if these I, names meant anything. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> David was a real jazz fan. Mm -hmm. So he and I got hit it off real well. Man, if, he, <laughs> if he'd have been elected governor, and he should have been, David probably have created a chair of jazz in state government. Yeah. You know, I could write hours of how much jazz has affected my life, okay? A few years later, I began to have trouble with the department I worked in. Because again, I, you know, I skate near the edge, you know. And uh, I remember David this one day said, yeah, they give you some trouble, come see me. I mean, he was at the highest realm of politics. Mm -hmm. Well, sure enough, they thought they had me, and they called me under knife and said, uh, we're going to reduce you. Uh, we think you need help. What they want to do is get rid of me. Mm -hmm. I knew this was coming, so I go down to see David, and the next Monday morning he drops a uh, lawsuit on him. 
because it so happened I worked in the division that worked for the comptroller on the legislature. Most of the people in state government were in the executive branch. Pack was a great lawyer. He decided to test the civil service, which they were not under. They didn't want to fight it. So for two years, I became a non-person. I drove all over the state <laughs> looking for records and things. Finally, they say, uh, they said the governor, but I think it was Commissioner Snodgrass called one day, said, who is this Andrew guy? We're paying him more money than we're paying the damn government, <laughs> you know? So again, my life, I wouldn't have met you, I wouldn't have had a great escape, I wouldn't have met indirectly both wives, girlfriends. It's all jazz related. I used to play a little bit here in high school till they kicked me out of the band because I couldn't, I wouldn't read music, but I stood up and took hot solos. Out! <laughs> so then I didn't play. I had mother send my cornet to me and I used to jam some in, in uh, Korea. And then uh, second divorce, I got my horn out and I couldn't, my lip was gone. So good therapy, I just, da, da. Took me a couple of weeks just to go that. Well, Knoxville, where they had the World's Fair. Out of Knoxville grew the World's Fair and the old city developed. And this is a big entertainment section in Knoxville. And it had a British lady who uh, uh, opened a little uh, cafe and turned out into a real well-known uh, jazz club. So I started hanging around with some of the guys. I mean, they, most of them are UT professors, you know. I went at their level, but I ran into some blues players. We kind of gradually formed a band, and I played some more. What I'm trying to say, and I've written a lot of this down for my family, my total life was jazz-oriented from a child. I was born with advantages, but that didn't matter to me. All I was interested in was jazz. 66 years ago, I'm now 74. What am I doing? I'm still running around hunting records. Your silvery beams will bring love's dreams. We'll be cuddling soon. La da 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 da. By the silver rainbow. What's the most valuable record that you have? And then, what is the, the record that you have that's most valuable to you as a person? Well, I, records like anything else in my eye, the holder, okay? Well, the two holy grails would be the Buddy Bolden cylinder. Nobody knows if that exists or not. Right. Something that did exist, and far nobody's ever found it, Louis Armstrong made a series of hot solos by playing into a recording machine. It was not like phonograph just the solos and somebody transpose those in the room. That'd be a whole other grill. I don't I don't have one. I just I, Do they exist? Oh yeah, it exists. It gets. So you know some people who have them? Allegedly there are two out of the fifty that somebody has. Another uh, and I don't have either would be a King Oliver. Zulu's ball. Mm -hmm. 
copy of that has exists. Not very conditioned. In my collection, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago, I uh, bid on and won a uh, General Morton 78, paid 3,000 bucks for it. But uh, this is one of the great rarities, you know. And no, I don't play them. Of course, my girlfriend, Jenny, you don't play your records? No, I'm out them. Obviously, I, I've got a valuable collection, but I don't look at it that way. Right. I could care less if it lost every cent of value. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had fun collecting. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something, if it exists, and I, I have a reason to think it does, my father was a uh, good piano player. His mother, my grandmother, whipped his butt for 12 years making him lessons and practice. Uh, he was a good he was a good player. He'd come in the afternoon and play, you know, when he get a, came home from work. During the early 20s, he worked at a uh, piano store that sold records, a relative of ours, Ledgerwood. So he knew a lot of music and played some in college and everything. Supposedly, he recorded one side, or at least there was, it somehow got recorded at the same place the Knoxville chocolate drops, okay? If, in fact, that was true, and if I found it, I would, I would give my soul for it. You know, I mean, compared to jazz history, yeah, that would have the meaning to me. What means the most is, is all the experience and friends. See, like, I travel. I've been to Antarctica, I've been to Russia, all this. But the reason I go to these places, I get on a jazz cruise and I say, well, look what I'm close to. It's totally encompassed my life. Well, who's a jazz artist that you think was overlooked? Somebody that didn't get the recognition like that Louis Armstrong got or Jelly Roll, but somebody that maybe just went under the radar or as a personal favorite of yours? Oh, geez. For example, like I think Una Mae Carlisle was overlooked. I think she was fantastic. Okay, she'd be a good example. The folks riding and drove the shadows away. Love walked right in and brought my sunniest day. One magic moment, and my heart seemed to know that love said hello, though not a word was spoken. Well, they had musicians like in New Orleans, uh, like the uh, the Boswell sisters, or the forerunners of the Andrews sisters. Mm -hmm. They grew up in New Orleans in the teens. Let's get going, Louisiana, hey, buddy. Let's get going now. We're ready. Let's start something, Louisiana, hey, buddy. Let's start calling a roll. Like that sport, sitting in the hay, loving it away, oh. The time is short, crack your whip, get your little buggy to go. Said, let's start something, Louisiana, hey, buddy. We're just raring to go. There was another young kid played cornet who used to play in the river boats, and supposedly his technique and sound were just like Bick's, but he never recorded. Uh, other people that didn't get their due, maybe, and uh, this would be very subjective. One of my favorite, he, although he, he gets his due, Clark Terry, one of the great trumpet players, uh, of course. And many of these guys drank themselves to death.
sometimes you look through boxes and you don't know what it is. And so, so often do you buy it just to check it out? Yeah, if tunes I recognize. I know real great jazz here, but they're tunes. See, in jazz, the big band era, there were two types. There were the Hot Swing Orchestra, and then there were the Mickey Mouse bands. Guy Lombardo, Kay Kaiser, they, were, they weren't swing bands. Of course, I've almost memorized the uh, discographies. Brian Rust, are you familiar with that? I've heard you talk about him. You know, he's a great discographer of the early jazz, 1897 and 1942. When I first got a copy of his book, 1,600 pages, I just went through it page by page by page. And another way is, uh, well, I gave you a list of uh, labels. You know, right. those are basically Afro-American labels. That don't mean everything in there is great jazz, but they'll likely have some connection with jazz and blues. It's just fun. Right. Part of it's the chase. There are people today that have no idea who Louis Armstrong was. He's considered one of the great entertainers of the 20th century. Coming in later, they don't know who Charlie Parker was. You know, you got these young kids, they don't teach history. Now that sets me off. I learned about that uh, when I uh, got into this uh, jazz thing here in Tennessee. And we would uh, bring in artists to be clinicians. And then some of these young band, high school bands, you know, came across the state. And I remember uh, I was emceeing one of them, you know, and uh, someone said, hey, you guys play well. You know, I mean, I don't remember kids like that playing. I said, you really like Charlie Parker? And I got this blank look. I don't know who you're talking about. I said, what do you mean you don't know who I'm talking about? You were playing his music. Well, our band director writes it out. And we were there playing the little black dots. How about went into orbit? I said, how in the hell can you teach jazz and not teach him the history? The uh, fellow that uh, adopted my mother for inheritance purpose, and the only reason he did that, our attorney said, if you want to make sure the closer relatives don't try to come in and break the will, you need to legally adopt her. That makes a legal adoptee the same as anybody else. Of course, he never married. He was getting on years, retired from the military in 1903, and uh, moved back to Dixon County and started acquiring all this land and stuff. And as he got older and older, you know, he said, well, what am I going to do with this? And some of the closer relatives, Leach family, they're the ones that started Commerce Union Bank, which became Ba Ba Ba, lived in Charlotte. And they used to tell him they'd ride into Nashville on the railroad. And that's another, that's my second great passion, the railroads. He said, we're going to have your money, your land, old man. No, you're not. The lawyer said, you need to adopt, you know, make it stronger. So he remembered that he had a uh, cousin that lived in Pecos, Texas, that had a four-year-old daughter, my mother. So he wrote and corresponded with my grandmother, 
both of my grandparents there were very up in years. The, uh, my grandfather was over 60 when my mother was born. He gets on the train, rides to Texas, and uh, meets my grandmother, meets mother. She faintly remembers it. Then he lived on to 1933, but then mother had graduated from college, and she wanted an acting career. She was in New York studying acting. Well, when he died, the closer relatives tried to break the will. Okay, they put up this monument. Did I show you the monument? Okay. That's where he was buried at. Three years ago, went all the way to Supreme Court, she won. Well, she's on a 21, 22 year old young girl almost. She had to learn business in a hurry. So that's why she went to law school. So, 36, she got married, 37, I come along, 40, the war starts, and I just always. Colonel heard about him, you know. It was always a touchy subject. He gave the uh, grounds and building for the school, the first school he had in White Bluff. Uh, he was very much interested in education. After he passed and I inherited, and it was, took me five years to work through with the IRS and all that, she was a lawyer and didn't leave a will. The school people came to me and said, we need to enlarge the school. Would you sell us this track that opens on the US 70? I said, well, I might. What are you going to move? He said, well, we'll have to move the uh, grave, this monster 8,000-pound monument. They get it. That's a touchy subject. You're not going to do it. So the guy handled my real estate, he came to me in a couple of months and said, look, let's, I want you to listen to them. They're going to have the architect there, you know. So we did, and uh, I began to realize that this is be good because it was going to get chipped and everything. They created this room to pick him up and bury him in it because he'd given so much to White Bluff. They had to move the body. If they had to move the body, they had to exhume the body. And I had to give permission to all this. And the day that the exhumers came, if that's the word, I wanted to keep it real low-key and quiet. The place was mobbed with people, you know, that remembered and everything. So they dug him up, we stored his body over in a funeral home, and it occurred to me a couple of weeks later that uh, he'd have been of great influence on in my life. I wonder what the body looks like. You know, this is 1933. So I get my best ideas in the early hours of the morning. I call he died up, in 33. Died in 33. What year was this they, when they had to dig him up? Uh, 95. 1995? Yeah, about 70 years, somewhere close to it. So I called Tommy Marvin. I said, uh, Tommy, uh, we got the uh, casket above ground. I want you to open it. I want to see what's in it. Go. <laughs> well, I mean, you can do it. I mean, uh, Mr. Smith, but it's just going to be dust. I said, I want to open it. Okay. So we set the time and appointment, and uh, I say, who's going to be there? They got it out of the wooden crate they were storing it in. There was an old-timey bomber that we invited to see. He said, you might be surprised when you open the casket, they'll be better preserved than you think. Because in those days, they had a guy from England that did all the embalming, and he used a special chemical based on arsenic, and it preserved the body. They don't do that anymore because of forensic reasons. I said, good. He said, you'll also probably because it was a high-end funeral, it'd be 
whole length of the casket will be covered with glass. Open, it's true. The felt and uh, stuff had fallen down and all the muck covered it up. It's kind of funny. And a lot of all this is on film. I insist on filming. Mm -hmm. Tommy goes over there and gets some Windex and a paper towel, wipes off one end. He didn't know which end it was. It was the head end. And lo and behold, there was the colonel. Skin, fingernails, mustache, everything was there. Just like he'd been buried yesterday. Three days ago. So I took pictures and then the word got out, you know, that crazy Andrew, he dug that body up, you know. And I've got pictures and uh, I'll give you a set of pictures. See, I'm kind of weird. Now, one last story with the colonel. I don't care if you believe it or not. We used to try to follow my dad around before he went overseas in World War II in the different army camps. And we were in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, Camp Shelby. Mm -hmm. And mother and I, we went down and we stayed and dad would get off duty. And uh, they were so desperate families want to be with their, you know, father and children. They'd rent and take anything even chicken coops. I mean, that's how it was in those days. Well, Dad, somewhere, they found a little one-room apartment, and uh, I guess he got it because he was a doctor or an officer, and that's where we stayed for several weeks. This has got to be about four years old or four and a half years old for me. And I can see it just as well as I see you. In the middle of the night, I woke up and looked down at the head of my bed, or the foot of the bed, and there was a white ghostly figure of the colonel. I don't know who he was. I just knew, oh man, and I screamed. Well, it turned out what I saw was identical to what's on that monument. The person you saw, the ghost. At the foot of the bed, he just stared. He at looked me. exactly like the guy in the coffin. Identical. identical. You'd never seen a picture before. I probably had and didn't recognize. I mean, I was too young, you know? Yeah. But that picture, or that, that I can image. see him in my mind now. Believe it? I don't know. I don't care. I know what I saw. I've had feelings all my life. I just had hunches. When my mother passed on, she was a lawyer. Uh, she didn't leave any uh, will. And I suddenly had to learn various business things. And again, in the house that she built, you were in the house once, mm -hmm. is that uh, she was somewhere there says, you better do this, you better not do that. Mm -hmm. Do this deal, don't do that. It's just, it's almost like another uh, dimension. Over the years, I've developed, I had, I don't know, I don't understand it, but I can sort of get out of my body and stand back. It's almost like seeing me, you know? You can do that anytime you want. No, not any time I want. It's when something serious is about, okay? A business deal or something. Right. They tried to get me to sell my bank stock, but I needed to raise a whole hell of a lot of money. I mean, pay off the inheritance. See, I didn't want to do that. Well, it turned out fine. The uh, thing split several years later, and it went from uh, about $8,000 to 
to has gone down there in the stock to over a million. Something was telling me this. I don't wanna I don't wanna, you know, say, oh break or what. I'm just telling you that something seems to says, listen, and I don't know my theories on God and such as that I believe exist. But every now and then I hear something says, you better listen to when I don't, I get in trouble. It's, uh, I haven't been the best father. I think my children love me. Uh, probably word my mother. But I've had a fun, good life. I wouldn't swap it for a bit. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. And if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner Back with the Woodpile, go to spuncounterguy.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Dan, dan, dan.